Uh, everything's a franchise now, so I thought I would give you today the sequel to a classic morality tale, Stone Soup 2. It picks up right at the end of the first Stone Soup story. The peddler moves on his way, having gotten the whole village together to make him a lovely soup meal, and the village became more closely bonded as a result, more open to one another, more sharing. It became a very nice place to live. And the villagers continued to live with one another in that way long after the, the peddler had left. And word started to spread out through the surrounding communities that this particular place was loving and peaceful and open. And they shared what they had with one another. And life was good even despite the hardships because the community was there for one another. And sure enough, more people started to arrive as the word got out. They wanted to live in a place like that. They wanted to experience that place. And very soon, the village, well, the village had become a town with all these new people who made the town better as they arrived because they brought new skills and new outlooks and, and new things to sell and to buy. And the village, the town now prospered with all of these people. But there was a sense of dis-ease among the villagers who were there first. There was always a sense that permeated the town, even as they shared, even as they gathered, even as they prospered, that there was an us and there was a them. There were the original makers of the stone soup, and then these guys who just want to ride our coattails. So the original villagers thought they would help remind everyone about what it was that had brought the village together into this place of peace and serenity and of sharing and of caring. And so on the anniversary of the first making of the stone soup, they decided they would hold the soup festival for the town. They would recreate the stone soup and remind one another what it was that was really important, what hung the village, now the town, together. And the newcomers were thrilled at the opportunity, one, to taste the soup, but also to bring something of what they had and what they had brought to the town with them, to add what they had to the soup. And so the day of Soup Fest came, and the stone soup ceremony began, and the cauldron was brought out to the fire in the middle of town. And the great soup stone was placed inside, and the water started to boil. And one by one, the original villagers came out and laid the pieces that they had brought to the stone soup, the carrots and the ham bone, the peas, the celery, whatever they had brought, went into the soup pot and started to mix together into that wonderful soup, and the smell started to permeate the town. And then one of the newcomers came up and threw a little chorizo in there because they liked that flavor and some, some, some little noodles went in as well, a little broken up spaghetti. 
And this started happening because, well, nobody had told the newcomers this isn't what something they should do. They just did it of their own accord. They were part of the town now. They were part of the soup making, and they added stuff in. And the smell got better and better. And mouths began to water, and no one in the town could wait any longer to taste the marvelous soup, and it was marvelous. It tasted wonderful. It smelled wonderful, and everybody enjoyed it in the moment. But there were those who were very aware that as good as the soup was, it was not the soup. It was very different from the soup. Something had, something had changed. And the responses were varied after Soup Fest. It wasn't the soup. The soup was ruined. What has happened to our village? Things have changed. And some people felt that so strongly that they began to depart. And still others who felt even more strongly sent the message out explicitly to some of the newcomers, you, you ruined the soup. Sure, it was good, but you made it different. And some of the newcomers felt that Blame so strongly they began to depart the town as well. And yet some still thought it was good. It was good soup. And perhaps, though I might be reluctant to admit it, maybe it was even better than the one we made last year. And for those who remained in the town, the bonds remained tight. The sense of neighborliness remained strong. But everybody also had the sense that the town was not quite the same anymore. For thousands of years, Many religions, especially in Western traditions, have been concerned with the idea of hospitality, specifically in how we welcome in a stranger traveling in our midst. A lot of this concern comes out of the realities of the harshness of living in the desert or other tough climates. In the Islamic tradition, that sense of how we take care of the travelers who come our way is codified as karam, ritualized hospitality. And in Arab cultures today, Islamic cultures today, you will still see folks welcoming the stranger into their home, fellow travelers, plied with food, treated with honor. Feels kind of the same as growing up in an Italian-American household, I will say that, where the food never stops. They will take care of you, and where it's almost rude to refuse. 
and it arises up in the Jewish tradition as well. Take care of the stranger. Do not oppress them, for you yourselves were strangers in the land of Egypt. Remember how that was terrible? Take care of the strangers in your midst. And that sense of hospitality traveled throughout the world as the Jewish diaspora traveled. And in Eastern Europe, especially in the Slavic countries, there is the tradition of the bread and the salt given to visitors to honor guests as they arrive. Bread because it is a symbol of the staff of life and salt because in those days when the tradition arose, it was the most precious mineral on earth. It was expensive. It was a very nice gift. The thing about all these traditions, though, is it assumes that the traveler, that the stranger is passing through. They're on their way somewhere. They are traveling. And for this one moment in this harsh climate, we do what we can to make sure that they are sheltered and fed and treated well before they move on their way. But here's the thing. Sometimes when we move from place to place, that move is, that move is a permanent one. We're not just traveling through. We're looking for a new place to be. We're looking for a new home. And here's where the hospitality starts to feel a little sticky. Because it's one thing to provide hospitality to a stranger passing through your land. It is completely different to welcome a stranger into the community for an indefinite amount of time, to welcome a stranger into community when they might be trying to make it their home. Because here's, here's the thing about us human beings, and, and this probably isn't a surprise to any of you, we don't do change very well at all. We like things to be pretty settled as they are. We like our routines. We like to know how things work. We like to know the steps to doing things in the community. We like to be able to know that if we do X, Y is going to happen in this particular instance. That's just how things work. We like the soup the way it is. We tend to hold a notion in our heads when we come into various communities, new family, new church, new school, new job, that there's an ideal of the way that particular community works. And very often that ideal is rooted into the way it was and the way we idealized it when we first walked in. That was the perfect moment. And that is how it should be. This is the perfect moment I have found. And what happens in those instances is often the welcome we offer to others, the open door that we hold out to others, comes with a few conditions. There are terms and conditions. There are codicils to the contract of coming in. 
We can see this in our own history back in the 50s when we were starting to expand the Unitarian Universalist Church across the country through the fellowship movement. The first step was always an ad in the newspaper that was headlined, Are You a Unitarian and Don't Know It Yet? And then a brief description of what a Unitarian was and the kind of mindset that they had. It was a pre-screening of a sorts. Are you this person? Then you probably belong here. Come and join us. We had a set cultural mindset of what Unitarianism was and then Unitarian Universalism and who fit in to the mold. And we grew. There were plenty of people in that mindset looking for a place to be and gather and connect with one another. But it wasn't, it wasn't an unconditional welcome. It had conditions. Are you a you, you, and don't know it yet? Do you fit the profile? It was a welcome of mere tolerance and not a full, open-hearted welcome. And don't get me wrong, tolerance is an excellent ideal. Getting to a place of tolerance with one another was a huge step in our development as human beings and the relationships that we have with one another, because it was a big ask even 50 years ago, 75 years ago. And yet tolerance these days, at least to me, doesn't feel like quite enough. It, doesn't, it, feels, it feels like a half measure, a toe dipped in the pool, a foot in the door, but not a full entrance. It's not acceptance, not a full open-hearted acceptance, at least it's, it's an acceptance with those conditions. We'll accept you, but it's going to be on our terms. We will accept you, but you're going to have to fit in pretty quickly here. We accept you, but please don't shake things up with new stuff. We accept you, but please don't make us uncomfortable with how you might do things differently. We accept you, but you got to understand this is how we make the soup here. And the soup is perfect. But here's the thing. Change is. Change happens. It's neither good nor bad. It's just a fact of life. And each time a new person enters a community, each time we welcome a stranger in, we are changed just by their presence. It might be slight and incidental at first, but expanding over geologic time within a community. But change happens. And sometimes 
we who've been here a while, we are the stranger walking into the community for the first time because something has changed in our lives. Some great grief has arrived. Some major life transition is going on. And this Sunday, I'm not the same person coming to church who I was last Sunday because now there's this thing and I need something from this community that maybe I can't name yet, but that changes the tenor of the community. We're not the same from week to week here. You can feel it just on a Sunday morning here. We're not the same church from Sunday to Sunday, depending on which of our beloveds are sitting here or what's going on or what's happened in the week to lead us into whatever we are calling into being in worship. We are changing constantly. And that's not a bad thing. And that's not a good thing. It's just a reality. So the question is, the real question in front of us this morning, I think, is this. How do we welcome the stranger and embrace the change that comes with that? I think the answer starts if we go back to the desert. We don't have to go too far. If we go back to the desert and the rituals of hospitality that have been engendered by that harsh condition. The monasteries of the Christian tradition began in the desert began with people heading out into the wilderness where they lived in order to try to get closer to God. And because in the desert, that sense of hospitality was already ingrained in people as a duty, hospitality became a part of the monastic life. And even as the monasteries started to expand and move into other places that were not the desert, the sense of monastic hospitality endured and spread. It was codified sometime in the early to mid-sixth century in what's known as the Rule of St. Benedict. Now, the rule dictated, or as St. Benedict writes, this is a, not a perfect rule, but just a suggestion for how to be together as this particular community. It was set up to name the passage of the day for the monks, what they did with their hours, how they treated one another, how they went about their work, how they went about their prayer, how they took care of one another, how they called one another back into the covenant they had together. And in chapter 53, it's not that long of a book, it just is split up very, very minutely. In chapter 53, St. Benedict lays out the rules for hospitality. Guests are to be met with due courtesy by the abbot or deputy. During their stay with us, they are under the special protection of an appointed monk and except for that, they do not associate with the community except by special permission. 
Now, that feels a little segregated, but the letter of the law has developed a spirit over 1,500 years, especially in monasteries that practice the Benedictine tradition. That sense of hospitality has expanded. It's not that we do not intermingle. It is that we don't place any expectations on you. You're here for shelter and a place to be and a place to contemplate, and we're not going to get in your way. We're here if you need us. If you need to talk to a monk about something, if you have a spiritual question, we are happy to do that, but you're not going to see a line of monks outside your door chomping at the bit and volunteering to come and spend any time with you. You are here to be and figure out who you were being and we're not going to approach you with any agenda other than to house you and feed you and give you space. We're not going to try to sell you anything. We're not going to ask you to think about monastery timeshares before we say grace before dinner. There's no hard sell. We're not going to take an inventory of what it is that you're bringing to the monastery with your time with us. Do you have a special skill we need? Can you, can you paint a fence? Uh, can you give us a little money? We don't care about that. They're not sizing the traveler up to see if they are monk material. Welcome. You are safe here. We will take care of your basic needs. And we will give you room to be you in relationship with the divine, however you define it, or just with your own self trying to figure it out. Greet the newcomer as a traveler first. That's the beginning. Because Unitarian Universalism at its heart, while a faith tradition, it's an experiment. It is a practice trying to bring a certain type of world into being. It is an experiment in trying to build a community larger community, a beloved community, to borrow some language, a community that is built across all of our myriad differences, that is built in spite of how we might be different from one another, not like-minded, not ticking off the are you a you you and don't know it yet boxes, but like-hearted passionate about the world being a certain way, being in harmony, being more fair and more just, being a place where everyone is accepted for who they are, where people can be the whole of who they are. That heart, that heart remains constant even when the shape of the body changes or the way we practice that into being change or how we adapt to the times.
Year after year in the village, now town, the cycle repeated. The soup was never the same once, and some people left, and some people stayed, and more people stayed than less. And over time, the, the town became a city, and every year they still had their soup fest. At one point, some of the original villagers felt there was a crisis on hand because the soup was just getting out of hand. It was different every year. How could there be a different soup every year? How do we connect with one another? How do we stay together? So let's, uh, let's codify it into law. Let's, let's prescribe what the soup is. But it had been so many years, what was the soup? Which recipe are we codifying? I remember so-and-so brought something that first time, but I don't remember what it is anymore, and he doesn't want to come back or have us ask questions, so which soup is it that we're trying to put together? Until they abandoned that project finally. And at last they started to just make room for the soup to be the soup. At last they came to realize that the soup at the end hadn't been the point of the stone soup in the first place. It was the making that had mattered. The making of the soup with whatever got thrown into the pot at any time, depending on the population or the shape of the place. And fewer people started to leave because their vision of the soup was accepted and the town grew and grew from a city to a megalopolis, always changing and always, always at its heart, the village that started it. We are in the community building business so our first and most important spiritual practice as a whole is the way we welcome in the stranger, whether that stranger is new to us or that stranger is the one we've become to ourselves because of what is going on in our lives. That is the spiritual practice we have to engage. And it behooves us to pay attention to how we build the community, how we bring the stranger in and just let loose and get rid of any expectations of what the soup's gonna look like at the end of the process because we're one part and we just can't imagine the whole thing. In a world that today is seeing seismic shifts in how people relate to one another, where the divisions get deep, where people's relationship to what church is or what it means is changing in ways we haven't even fully begun to grasp yet. where what people need from beloved community is changing in ways we haven't fully reached an understanding of yet. The spiritual practice of our hospitality, of how we welcome the stranger, matters more than ever. And the question is, 
to what level do we carry that out? Is it a tepid welcome of tolerance where we still are going to make the same soup every day? Or is it the radical welcome? Meeting the stranger as they are, even when the stranger is us. And giving them space and shelter. And an ear to listen and a shoulder to cry on if it is needed. But where we treat one another, not as permanent fixtures, but as traveling companions on this longer journey of beloved community that we are on together. The radical welcome that meets the stranger as they are, even when it is us, and embraces the ways in which we will be changed and transformed by every single one of those encounters. May it be so.